I'm Kim Raycon, Marketing Associate for Harper Academic, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Harper Academic's podcast, Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators and students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Miranda Emerson. It's November 1965, and American actress Iolanthe Green is the talk of the West End. Charismatic, mysterious, and beautiful, she brings glamour to Soho's Galaxy Theater. But one evening, after another rapturously received performance, Iolanthe walks through the stage door and out into the London night, and then she is gone. At first, everybody cares. And then, as the Moors' murders unfold and political scandals erupt, only one person does. Anna Treadway is Iolanthe's dresser at the Galaxy, a young woman of dogged determination with a few secrets of her own. Anna's quest to discover the truth about Iolanthe's disappearance brings together a group of London emigres and throws them into a world of Soho jazz clubs, backstreet doctors, police brutality, and seaside ghost towns in Miranda Emerson's debut novel, Miss Treadway in the Field of Stars. Miranda and I sat down for a wide-ranging discussion about some of her novel's overarching themes, about how Miss Treadway's atmosphere reminds us of Russell Lewis's period television drama Endeavor, a show we both love, and even about Anglo-Saxon poetry. Miss Treadway in the Field of Stars is available now from our imprint Harper in the U.S. and is available from Fourth Estate in the U.K. American listeners who are educators should know Miss Treadway is one of our select titles in the exam copy offers in March's Creative Writing and Writing in Literature e-newsletters. To sign up for our newsletters, which feature monthly exam copy offers, visit harperacademic.com. But act fast. Our March offers go out on the 14th and are available for a limited time only. So today I am here with Miranda Emerson, author of the debut novel, Miss Treadway in the Field of Stars. Miranda, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, you're very welcome, Kim. Thank you for asking me. No problem. All right, so one of the things that I really loved about Miss Treadway was the atmosphere of the novel. Um, and I think that's down to the setting in terms of place and time, as well as the historical and cultural moment in which, you, in which you've placed the plot. So we're in 1965 London and its environs. Um, it's the 60s, so racial tensions are at play. Culture is exploding with new fashions and new music and new scenes. Um, and there's also very real terror in the north of England in Yorkshire with the Moors murders uh, committed by Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. So why were all these elements so essential to you? Why did you want this to be sort of the atmospheric melting plot for Miss Treadway? Um, I think I, I've been interested for a long time in the way that the 60s has been very neatly packaged and portrayed in popular culture. So there's been this kind of uh, simplification of the 60s. We, we, we all have this sense of the singing 60s, um, of the Beatles and the Stones, of uh, Bieber and Mary Quant, of mini dresses and Carnaby Street. Um, and I grew up um, watching a lot of 60s television drama and mm -hmm. watching kind of revivals of 60s plays. Mm -hmm. um, and the themes in a lot of 60s plays, this is, um, in British drama, this is really kitchen sink drama. This is drama 
from a first wave of working class playwrights who were coming through, who were writing about the reality of working class life um, and the struggle of it, um, and quite often writing about you know the differences between women's and men's lives and how trapped people were uh, by poverty or by social convention. Mm -hmm. So I had these two completely different senses of the 60s sort of playing out in my mind as I was growing up. Um, at the same time, I have parents who, um, my dad is a pre-war baby, my mum is a post-war baby. Mm -hmm. um, they are around the ages of the young people in the novel. So that London of young people was the London of my mum and dad. My mum was at drama school. Uh, my dad was still working as a lecturer, was about to become an actor. So mm -hmm. they, I've also had their perspective on the 60s, on, um, and they come from quite political place, so kind of on the politics of the 60s. Um, and I thought I really wanted to balance in the novel um, the... The, the cultural um, explosion that is genuinely happening in England, the kind of extraordinary music scene, the extraordinary art and design scene, um, but at the same time layer above and below it the kind of the social conservatism that is still true um, and that is still kind of working in most people's lives. The fact that if you're outside London, if you're outside the cities, if you're living a working class existence, you know, you're not wearing extraordinary mini dresses and you're not living an incredible swinging 60s life. That's a, actually a very privileged existence. Um, and that there is an entirely other world which probably in our imagination almost belongs more to the 50s still than mm -hmm. the 60s, particularly in 1965. Um, this is still a very conservative world um, and a very restricted world. Um, and I wanted to kind of look at those various layers because it's so interesting to look at the way that things are working in different parts of society and how different people's realities are. Yeah, it. I mean, when I was reading it, the, the sort of mental pictures that I would get in my head, and hopefully you don't hate this comparison, but <laughs> the TV show Endeavor? Yes, yes um, absolutely. I absolutely love that show, and I think that that sort of the, the art design, the set design, it, it sort of, so that sort of world of, of Endeavor was sort of playing out in my head while I was reading Miss Treadway. Mm. Not so much um, with all the actors, but, <laughs> but it sort of got me thinking of like, well, if this was adapted, like who would play who? So I did sort of go down that line a bit, but but it was very much sort of that kind of that kind of styling for me. Yes, and I I love Endeavor. I oh, think good. Endeavor is absolutely beautifully done, beautifully written, beautifully realized. Um, really, really good drama, and and uh, an interesting look at the sixties of the same thing. That tension between there is a rising youth movement, mm -hmm. um, but actually this is still a very regimented society. Mm -hmm. And yeah, no, 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 I I absolutely agree. And I think did Endeavor Endeavor possibly started after I started writing Miss Treadway, mm -hmm. but I was I was captivated by it. I loved it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the 60s, so the book is set about 10 years before I was born. Mm -hmm. And I think like a lot of people, I 
I'm I'm slightly in love with that decade. Okay. And it's it's such it, it provides such an extraordinary transition moment, I think, between uh, the sort of the early part of the twentieth century with a social structure in part inherited uh, in this country from Victorian morals and but you have in the 60s obviously you have the second wave of feminism coming through mm-hmm. you have uh, we had immigration happening through the 40s and 50s and 60s but we know where we're heading is 68 uh, which you know was an important year in this country as it was in the US mm-hmm. um, in terms I think in terms of the civil rights movement and in terms of an awareness of of the need to fight racism of how bad things were for um, black and Asian people within society. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 65, where I, which I'm writing about, we haven't got that. In the UK, we haven't got that. And I think that I was really interested to start at a moment where we haven't quite reached the kind of the 60s radical position. Mm-hmm. And we're so, you know, the ideas might be around, but they're not necessarily affecting people's lives. In 65, sort of in the week that the book, that the novel is set, mm-hmm. um, you have the Race Relations Act came into force in this country. And it was the first act that said that you could not deny service to somebody in a restaurant or shop because of the color of their skin. But it was written in such careful uh, language with um, so few penalties attached that it really made no difference at all. But it was a sign that within the establishment that it was starting to realize that while we didn't have the same kind of laws of segregation that you have in the in the um, early decades in the U.S., we had like de facto segregation, um, and we had lots of shops and businesses which were refusing service. Um, we had employers absolutely could bar people based on skin color. And at 65, there's just this beginning of a realization that actually we might need to tackle this. Something's gone really badly wrong with this new kind of early multicultural society and the way it's working. Yeah, so, so that's really interesting to me because I, I confess I, I did not know that part. Um, I did not know the, the historical part. But that makes it interesting to me hearing that now and thinking about Aloysius because he he sort of arrives at this... Or he, he arrives in England with sort of this very kind of maybe romanticized, idealistic sort of vision of what he thinks going to England is going to be and how he's going to sort of work his way into society. And now sort of things that, that happen to him and sort of very overt or very nuanced slights that he experienced really sort of adds kind of a complexity to how he how he deals with the society in which he finds himself. Yes. Well, he he turns up in society and one of the reasons I wanted to place him alongside Anna. So, Anna is ostensibly very English. I'm going to leave it at that. Um, Aloysius uh, has come from Jamaica six years earlier. He's a very highly qualified chartered accountant. Um, he's very, very intellectual and engaged and has read loads and he's gone to grammar school in Jamaica. He's gone to university. And in a way, Anna and Aloysius step into society on what should be a somewhat equal footing, although he's technically better qualified 
because she hasn't been to university. They're both very intellectual young people. Mm-hmm. And what I was really interested in is is that thing that they they both go into society with this kind of equal ability, say, mm-hmm. but because of the different colours of their skin, when they walk individual individual situations, the way that they're treated is starkly, starkly different. And that Aloysius believes, he has done everything that he believes a person could possibly do. He is so beautifully educated, he is so well behaved, he dresses the part, he has a very establishment type job, he is an accountant, mm-hmm. and, and yet he is completely unacceptable to a very, very large part of society. Um, and, you know, I, I, I wanted very much for the reader to, of, of any colour and any background, to identify with Aloysius, you know, uh, and to feel that pain of doing absolutely everything that you feel that a society has asked of you. In your colonial country, he's in, comes from a colonial country, he's gone through a very English education system, he's read all of English literature, he has um, imbibed everything about English culture, he, he understands this. He better read than probably 95% of the British people actually living in Britain Mm -hmm. Um, and he comes here full of Dickens and Vanity Fair and the reality of of his unacceptability, that's not a word um, (laughs) is is absolutely crushing to him and yet I feel, you know he's not going to give up he's here and he has a right to be here and I really wanted Aloysius be somebody who we feel do you know what he's he's gonna try he's going to endure because he has a right to be here <laughs> sorry going off on a, on a political tangent no 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 because I, because I think it also speaks to sort of one of the one of the big themes of the novel is and something that I think nearly all the characters perhaps all of the characters in the book struggle with is this idea of belongingness like where yeah. where do you fit in and I, I mean everyone from from Anna to Iolanthe to mm. Brennan slash Barnaby um, to to Otmar uh, and his family. I mean, the, these characters really struggle with. They are all. They seem to all have arrived at this place, mm. and now it's then it's like now what now now what do I do? Yes, and I, and I think um, so. I mean, I mean that's quite a personal thing for me in that. Um, my, I have a very mixed background. On my dad's side, I'm English and Welsh. On my mum's side, I'm French and Polish, uh, mainly. And we, um, so my French and Polish family came over during the pogroms from uh, France and Poland because it was safer to be in Britain. Mm-hmm. And if you were Jewish, we're Jewish, um, than to stay on the continent at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the, in, certainly in the case of the, my Polish family, that saved the lives of the bit of the Polish family that, that arrived here. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother, um, had talked very much about her great grandparents and her grandparents' experience. Sorry, her grandparents and her parents' experience of being here, and the kind of the different experiences of like first generation immigrants against second generation immigrants. So that, say, my great grandfather came over and um, he became very successful, and he uh, he built theatres in London. And to him, this you know that's an immensely establishment type thing to do, how successful to be able to you know, find the money to build a theatre and open it with Noel Coward's private lives in 1930. But my uh, great-grandfather was completely unacceptable in any establishment circles because he was 
Jewish and he was small and dark and he had the wrong name. Um, so there is that, that first generation experience, which I sort of, I, I've poured a little bit into Otmar, who comes um, from Turkish uh, Cyprus mm-hmm. and who's had this uh, very kind of um, bohemian intellectual beginning. Um, but he arrives in London and, of course, he's not going to be a book reviewer and he's not going to be intellectual and he's not going to end up uh, teaching the epic Turkish poets. Um, he he goes and works in garment factories and he ends up running a restaurant in Covent Garden. And all of his kind of hopes and dreams then get passed down to his two daughters mm-hmm. who have themselves been divided by, at that point in our education system, we had something called the 11 plus and you took a, an exam at 11 and it decided whether you went to an academic school and would thus be trained for university or whether you went to something called a secondary modern, which essentially said you are not academic, you will not go to university and you will go on to have a blue collar career. And one of his daughters passes and one of his daughter's fails. Right. And which was also true of my mother and her sister, in that my mother failed and her sister passed. And then that completely redefines as well what they can then do with their lives. So I think what I'm saying here in terms of belonging is uh, that I have a very personal perspective mm-hmm. on what it takes for a family to attempt to make it within English society at this very particular juncture in time. Mm-hmm. The the shedding of the accent and the shedding sometimes of your name, mm-hmm. the shedding of your language, certainly the shedding or the the hiding of your religion. Mm-hmm. So Otmar's elder daughter, who goes to a very good school, uh, wears a cross around her neck. She, she doesn't show the fact that she's a Muslim. Mm-hmm. And the, there are these many, many, many steps towards a very basic level of, of uh, acceptance. But they're, they're all different. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to have so many characters within the novel. There's this large group because everybody's story is slightly different. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, and sometimes it's about the color of your skin or the religion or what class you've been in your old country and what class is available to you, what social class is available to you in your new country. It's about the money you bring with you and sometimes it's about education. And I wanted all of those tiny but really crucial factors to be seen in different parts and the different characters as to how they are told where they should slot into society. And quite often, this is not where they want to slot into society. So their their own dreams and their own aspirations and their own abilities are then, you know, in a huge amount of tension against where English society wants to put them. Yeah, and it also breeds for a lot of secrets and reinvention of of mm. themselves as they go along. Quite a, quite a few of the cast of characters in Miss Treadway do have secrets and do do reinvent themselves. Do you have a favorite or a couple favorites? I think okay. Well, I've I've done here, so I will I will do. Otma and um, Samira and her sister Rashida, who we don't meet in this book, mm-hmm. I think, oddly, are quite personal to me, even though they have a different background. Mm-hmm. Um, but they meant quite a lot to me because they came out of my family, so that's my bit of autobiography. Okay. I think, as well, in terms of a personal relationship, actually, 
in writing the character of the policeman, Brennan Hayes, mm -hmm. I drew a lot on um, my husband's family's of, uh, experience of trying to come to this country. So my husband comes from an Irish background. He grew up in Northern Ireland, and they had told me lots of uh, stories about so his grandmother's experience of coming over to England to nurse in the 1920s and, and essentially having to give up and go home because after a year because patients would not be touched by her because she was Irish mm -hmm. they, they would rather not be nursed than be touched by Irish which is so extraordinary and extreme that you sort of hear it and go I, I cannot believe that this was the world in 1920 in parts of England but it was so I think I suppose I have my wild sort of bits of invention in the novel which I love very much but mostly it's just a very personal book yeah no that that's really interesting I, I didn't realize that and I think that that's even more more striking when you think of just how many sort of pieces you were also pulling together to, to yeah. sort of make a story that I mean you've just told us and that's great so we know it I think anybody just sort of looking at it that would not have been sort of the assumption to make about idea generation and, and stuff like that so that was really that's really interesting Mm. Well, I think, I, you know, I, I'm somebody who's very, very interested in untold history. Mm -hmm. And obviously, uh, stories like that, the, the very extreme anti-Irish views, that have sort of got written out of culture. So, you know, it's not acceptable to be like that anymore, so it's not in culture. But the very fact that that was so common, that anti-Irishness was so extreme for such a long time, has in a way been written out of our culture and our history and I think, you know, it actually needs to be there. We need to take ownership of it in the same way, you know, it's to do with the neatening of history and the, and the need, of course, for, for Britain to see itself as a good and tolerant country. And we have aspects of our society which are tolerant and open and mixed. But, you know, we also have a very, very problematic history with race and colonialism. And I'm fascinated by our kind of untold colonial history and our relationship with colonized nations. And, you know, Jamaica is a colonized nation, but Ireland's a colonized nation as well. Mm -hmm. In fact, Wales, where I live, is the first colonized nation. It was colonized a thousand years ago by the English and taken over. And there, if you're British and you go through British schooling, there is a neatening of history which kind of just doesn't talk about colonialism. It just ignores the fact that England has, at one time or another, ruled a third of countries on this planet. And that some of the things that England, in fact, all of the colonial history that, that England has been responsible for has been deeply, deeply damaging to other countries. But it's, it's had an effect on us, too. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's enriched us. It's made us a very rich and powerful country, and we have amazing museums full of things that we've stolen from other people around the world. But it also, we have a lasting relationship with those countries that we've colonized. Mm -hmm. And I'm really interested in that lasting relationship between a colonized people and the colonizers since um, in my family background I'm sort of from various parts of both I'm from colonial powerful nations and from less powerful nations and less powerful groups 
that relationship, the exploration of that relationship sometimes leads to disillusionment. And Anna, in the, in the novel, Anna seems to butt up against some hard truths um, at, at several turns. And she, she becomes disillusioned with what she calls all the great institutions of the kingdom. Miss um, Treadway is obviously period fiction, um, given given its setting. So, why do you think it's essential and necessary for period fiction to not just allow a reader to escape, but also to have those social and institutional critiques in it? Well, I think there are a number of answers to that. I think one of the answers is. I mean, obviously, I come from a particular social and political point of view where mm-hmm. I'm interested in unexplored and untold histories. And it's partly about just giving a reader a glimpse into something that they might not be aware of and they might not have come across from school of, you know, this was the reality. I think that it's about not trying to overly romanticize the past. Mm-hmm. I don't want to take away the the cultural vibrancy of the 60s or how extraordinary certain movements were within them. But at the same time, you have to cast a critical eye. Maybe that's coming from an academic background. Maybe it's, you know, I'm the daughter of a historian. Um, I can't help but do it. Mm-hmm. And saying, well, look at all the stuff that didn't work. Look at where we've come from. And what does where we've come from tell us about where we've got to? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really interested by the fact that lots of people, British readers particularly, uh, read this Treadway, and they kind of go, wow, I mean, thank goodness it's not like that anymore, mm-hmm. and we've come such a long way, and, you know, we live in a beautiful, open and tolerant society, <laughs> and, you know, everything's fine now. Yeah. And then other people pick it up and go, oh, nothing's changed. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you know, the truth lies somewhere between those two, probably. But I I was really interested in presenting that as a kind of challenge to the reader to kind of go, okay, so let's not, you know, rose tint this too much. Here's the 60s with all their issues. How much do you think we've progressed? And mm-hmm. how much have we not progressed? And I, I think there's one other point that, uh, when I was thinking about this question, it's a really, really interesting question, is that actually... <laughs> read Shakespeare or see Shakespeare and I see the people in Shakespearean plays grappling with the same issues that we are today. So what does it take to be a good leader? Who is good enough to lead a kingdom? Well, no one's good enough to lead a kingdom. But what do they need to have within them to to do justice to the role of leadership? So, you know, these really big, important questions. All those questions within Shakespeare are stuff that we're dealing with now. And, and when I read historical fiction, or I, I read books from the past themselves, and I see those characters grappling with issues around women's lives, or how we create a fairer society, or you know how society should be run at its most basic level, actually, I, there is a feeling of kinship. I actually get some consolation from that. I think you know these are important questions, and the world is a flawed pace, and we've been trying to solve them for a long time and in one way isn't it sad that we yeah and frustrating yeah yeah but in another way do you know what this is the business of being human is look at your society going oh my goodness it's incredibly flawed and they're going okay what do we need to do and 
weirdly consoling. Yeah. I just think, you know, this is a very essential part of who we are and what it means to be us. That's a nicer way to look at it than I, I'm usually, and, and I appreciate that point of view because I'm usually frustrated by it. I mean, I, yeah. I, come, I come from an academic background where I, I trained to be a medievalist and yeah. I'm like, wow, we're still talking about this. <laughs> like, we're still, yeah. and, and for me, I mean, it, it's, it is interesting that there are still these questions, but for, for me, I guess my, my primary emotion is just one of frustration. Like, what, like why can't we get yeah. ourselves together and, and solve some of it? So I do, I do like the, the, the alternative way of looking at it, of that I, I probably would be less stressed if I, if I thought of it as a kind of consolation, that, that, I do, <laughs> that I do have something in common with, you know, with Jeffrey Chaucer or Marjorie Kemp or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that. Uh, no, yeah, sorry, go on. No, go, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I, I absolutely feel that. And I think, like you, um, I studied uh, medieval literature and Anglo-Saxon poetry. Mm. And actually, one of the most deeply moving things, I remember reading really early, early poetry, like The Wife's Lament, mm-hmm. and sort of thinking, I'm incredibly moved by the connection I feel by you, anonymous poet, mm-hmm. in the 8th century, and the things that you're grappling with, and the fact that that I, I find um, there is a beautiful image in Tom Stoppard's uh, play, Arcadia. Mm-hmm. And it's about the, the young girl and it is incredibly upset about the burning down of the library at Alexandria and the loss of all that knowledge. And her tutor, Septimus, says to her, but, but someone else will pick it up along the way. There's this, like, knowledge is like this huge journey. And all the writers and all the philosophers, all of us really, engaged in culture, are part of this kind of long march. And do you know what? If there was some spectacular book about something and it got burnt or lost along the way, as many books have been, mm-hmm. um, someone else will write it further down the road because we're all on the same journey and we're all asking the same questions and we're all grappling with the same things. And in fact, there is a beautiful sense of community in that, that there is no completion point. And sometimes when it comes to social justice, yes, I completely understand. That is an immensely painful thing to think, could we not just get a little further on towards a fairer society? The way I think we do just really incrementally, but that we are on a huge march and that joins us in asking these questions and at least in having a kind of brotherhood or sisterhood of knowing that we want the world to be better and that we're going to try and ask the right questions and and that there is a solidarity in that, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. even if it's a kind of, there's an incompleteness. We never get to the destination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I, I like that. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. I do. So you've hinted that Miss Treadway hopes to be a series, will be a series. Uh, yes. Well, um, I am seventy percent of the way through book two. Okay. Uh, can you can you give us a clue as to as to what book two deals with? Okay, uh, I can. So book two is set twenty months on from book one. Okay. It's the summer of nineteen sixty-seven. We're going to meet again a lot of the characters that okay. we met in book one. We're going to pick up on a crime that happens and knocks uh, Iolanti's disappearance off the front 
pages uh, very early on in in the novel, which is that there is an attack on a young male prostitute, possibly by a political figure. Oh. Um, and I, I always knew when I put that in. Ripped from contemporary headlines. Yes. <laughs> there, was, there was going to be an answer to that, but the answer lay further down the road, from oh. the Okay. Um, so we're going to come back to that, and we're going to kind of look at that story and something else that happens in 67, and pick up on, there's a lot of fallout from the events that happened during book one, okay. um, and so our characters are in a very different place in 67 than they were in 65. Well, I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to that. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. I'm really enjoying writing it. That's great. So we have one last question. This is a, okay. it's a surprise question. I didn't okay. give you I didn't give you this question. Who is your favorite teacher? My favorite teacher. Yeah. My favorite teacher. Oh, I I can absolutely answer this. I had a sixth form. Okay, so sixth form is when you're 17 and 18. It's the last two years of high school. Okay. And it's when you're specializing. You specialize in three subjects prior to university. And I had an English teacher called Hugh Epstein. And Hugh was amazing. He was absolutely incredible. And I'd gone through like the first five years of high school, which is 12 plus in the UK. Mm-hmm. And um, to be honest, I, I hadn't really loved my English teachers, and which was just terrible because I'm somebody who adores books. And I'd found some of the teaching of Shakespeare, and uh, we'd done Steinbeck, we'd done great books, but I find it very uninspiring. And I'd sort of fallen out of love with education because the subjects I liked best were being taught in a very unimaginative way. Mm-hmm. And I turned up at six four, having chosen English as one of my specialisms, because obviously I loved books, it was my thing. And here was this teacher who was so clever and so imaginative and brought such extraordinary energy and drama to his lessons, who brought Shakespeare alive, who taught who taught mostly drama. We did uh, Irish drama and Shakespeare with him. Mm-hmm. And he put us on our feet and we acted through every class and we debated and we took different parts and we argued about what these plays were about. And it utterly transformed me in terms of I fell back in love with education. And I realized, you know, sometimes it can just take one wonderful teacher to make you think, I love education, I love culture, I can do this, and to send you flying off to university to do English. So, Hugh, all the way, because he was wonderful. Well, Miranda, it was so nice talking with you. Thank you so much for joining our little podcast. Thank you, Kim. Miranda, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Cheers. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.